0: Taking ourselves back in time to the first century, we do know for a fact that the gospel message was carried to all the world by men and by women who were convinced that Jesus was alive. Not only alive, but alive from the dead, resurrected Jesus. Now, up until now, in Luke's gospel, we have focused on the empty tomb, the missing body, with, of course, the explanation given to us by the angels. But we should be clear that the gospel does not go forward on the case of the best explanation of the empty tomb. And sometimes we argue that way. We see the tomb is empty. The only reason it could be empty was because he rose again from the dead. But they did not go forward only on that basis. The writers are very clear that not only was the tomb empty, but that the people also actually saw the risen Christ. There were these significant appearances, and that's why when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, there's a record, a catalog of those who were still alive and could bear witness to the risen Christ. Luke is the one who now comes and presents some of his own testimony To these appearances. You see, the gospel advances on the confident assertion that the Lord also appeared as one very much alive. I think it's worth just pausing for a second by suggesting that our efforts in prayer and in evangelism are proportional to our conviction regarding the truth of the resurrection. It's not the only factor. And it may be the case that we believe it to be true, but the truth of the resurrection has not properly impacted our hearts. We haven't grasped its monumental significance. But when you see the New Testament writers, it was their conviction of the resurrection that thrust them out into the world. And so I think we can say biblically that the more convinced we are regarding the resurrection, the more fervent we will be in prayer and in evangelism. And it's also true that the more the resurrection impacts our hearts, then the more fervent we will be in prayer and evangelism. Because the resurrection, of course, teaches that Jesus is true in all that he did and all that he said. And Jesus warned souls regarding the neglect of the gospel. Those that believe not, the wrath of God abides on them. Well, Jesus said that he rose again. It must be true. Therefore, what do we do with that? It's also clear that the resurrection, of course, announces Christ as the only true Savior. So if we believe the resurrection, and we're saying this is the only way whereby God can save souls, we're left again with the uncomfortable situation that those outside Christ are heading to a lost eternity. See, how we think the resurrection so governs how we live and serve in this world. Now, in case you're wondering, I have chosen two separate events that are straddled together in Luke's gospel. And so I deliberately, I left off verse number 28, last Lord's Day, in the knowledge that I was going to take these things together Two events. Initially, the disciples, uh, they see the Lord. He appears to them after the journey to Emmaus. And then he now comes in verse 36 and following, and he stands in their midst. But they clearly are connected. Look at verse number 36, as they thus spake, Jesus stood in the midst of them. I'm not entering into the debate as to whether verse 36 and following is covering more than one appearing in the upper room. We know there was more than one, and so some suggest, well, Luke is just summarizing the various appearances of Christ in the upper room. Be it as it may, we are seeing the appearances recorded by Luke, first of all, to those on the road to Emmaus and then to those who were there, the disciples of Christ. Verse number 33, the eleven gathered together. A couple of things just by way of interest. The disciples are so overcome by the news of Christ's resurrection that they forget their own advice. Look at verse 29. It is evening, the day is far spent, tarry with us. And yet the minute they know that Christ is risen again, They return the same hour and get to Jerusalem. Have you ever been so captivated by the love of Christ and by His resurrection truth? That has caused you to act in such a way that you would appear to the world as being crazy? Is that not what Paul says? You think I'm mad. Out of my mind. And Paul says, yes. For the gospel, yes, I will be out of my mind To extend Christ's kingdom. So, these disciples, just an interesting comment by the side, you see how how overwhelmed they were with the joy of having seen Christ. And they get to the room and they say, The Lord is risen indeed. What joy, what triumph. It's also worth noting the reminder that they found the eleven gathered together. They didn't have to go around all the homes from place to place. Because at the very beginning of the New Testament church, there is the recognition of the importance of believers gathering together for support, for comfort, to pray, and they come to see Christ in the gathered assembly. I don't want to over-spiritualize that, but we do know the Bible tells us when we gather in His name to your three, He is here in the midst. Now look, he doesn't record the woman How they saw the Lord in the garden. He gives us his own appearances. But they serve as evidence again to the Lord's resurrection. I've said to you, this whole chapter, it it has the sense of those being convinced who once were doubting. And the whole thing, we see again this idea of doubts, verse number 38. Why are you troubled? Why are you still uncomfortable in your own hearts? But the evidence is building and building. But I want to move away from that idea. This is, of course, clear evidence regarding the Lord's resurrection. But what struck me as I looked at these verses is the sense and the idea of continuity in the Lord's interaction with the disciples. Things are different, but are strangely similar. We see things that we've already noticed in Christ prior to, to his resurrection. He breaks bread again. He's done that before. He does it again. We find even in his teaching, he's taught them before, but he emphasizes the very same thing, the things that he told them, verse 44, while I was yet with you. And so I thought it would be helpful to us, uh, rather than going over the same material all the time, but just to pause and consider This theme of continuity in the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord. Things that strike us as being the same. I trust you'll find this edifying and beneficial. So let's begin by looking at the continuity in the Lord's true humanity. See, what you're seeing here in these verses is evidence again that the Lord is still very much a man. Oh, yes, there are differences. Differences in His appearance. Several times in the gospel narrative, we find people not recognizing Jesus in His post-resurrection state. Mary thought He was a gardener. Others, again, we we're not sure how their eyes were from them, but there are several times when they were not clear in their recognition of Jesus in His appearance. What it all means, I'm not sure. I'm just saying there were differences. It's also clear that there were differences in his abilities. Verse number 31, it says, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Then verse number 36, As they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, Now, the other narratives in the other Gospels gives us the idea of Jesus disappearing quickly and reappearing all without notice. How do you understand all this? Well, let me be very clear. One thing you must not do is overly speculate. All manner of concepts and theories regarding the physicality of the Lord's body that are not edifying and probably head towards serious heresy. Let me read to you a bit of John Gill. I think John Gill has a a good common sense of view here. Not that he vanished as a specter or as smoke vanished into air, but agility being a property of his risen body, he very suddenly and swiftly and in a moment withdrew himself from them. For if he could withdraw himself from company in a very speedy manner before his resurrection, much more after. So we do read in the past of the Lord going through the midst of them untouched, unharmed. And so there's ideas in which he moved quickly in the past, but that agility is increased in his post-resurrection state. You see, one thing I think you should be careful about, and again, those of you who are teaching young children, and you, you get this verse, he vanished, and the child will say, Mommy, what does that mean? And they're often so caught up with some of the Disney stuff that they have an idea of vanishing here that is not according to Scripture. Dangerous ideas regarding our Lord, because what you must never ever imply is that the Lord in his post resurrection state is less than a real man than he was before his resurrection. He still has the properties of a true human body and a reasonable human soul. Now, that is not to say that there are no differences. 1 Corinthians, you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Turn over there quickly and you'll see that we are told that our resurrected bodies are different. But try to find these things and you'll find it very difficult. We know 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead, it is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. And that bit is Okay. No more decay, no more disease, no potential of the body rotting away in some grave. That can never, ever happen. The body, the body, not the soul, but the body now is immortal. That's okay. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Again, the sense of death being dishonorable and glory of resurrection, okay, fine. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. What does that mean? Does it have the idea of, of, of no more sleep and that idea? But then you get to verse 44. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now that does not mean... Here, here's the problem comes. That does not mean we are spiritual entities on clouds with harps. It's a body, a physical body. Because the word body used by Paul... Ordinarily, has that sense in these writings, a physical body, but has some form of spiritual property. I think the idea is that there is some degree of abilities that are spiritually endowed. These ideas of spiritual abilities that are beyond what was true naturally. Please, let's not take time in the lobby trying to discuss what this all may mean. I think we'll get to the point that we really have no idea or very little idea what it's going to be like to have a resurrected body. But it's going to be better than this one. That ought to be a comfort to some of you because you know in your own mind and heart right now that you are really struggling in the physicality of your body and all of its weakness and all of its corruption and all of its disease. Your resurrected body is going to be a glorious body. So we do see regarding the continuity in our Lord's humanity, we see significant differences. But however, we understand those differences and those challenges, the evidence is clear that he has still a real humanity. Look at verse number 39 again. Because the Lord makes this point himself. He comes in the midst of the disciples and they're terrified and suppose that they've seen a spirit. So what does he say? He says, I'm not. Basic, I am not a spirit. I'm not a specter. I'm not sort of ghostly apparition. Behold my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. See that? He's making the point. This is a real humanity that can be handled. And a humanity that is able to take in and process food. Isn't that what happens next? They still don't believe for joy. And the Lord says, right, if you still don't believe, bring out the fish and the honeycomb and eat. I we I, I don't I get to the point sometimes we're so scared of the, of the ordinariness of this. He truly consumes and is able to take in and process food in this humanity. Therefore, the Christian testimony, and please, those of you who are, again, growing up in the faith and seek to understand these things, there's a term that you must live and die on. And that is when it comes to your claims regarding the resurrection of Christ, you're going to tell people, I believe not only that Jesus rose again, but that his resurrection was a true bodily resurrection. Because you get got some nutcases out there in the liberal school who will say, well, Jesus rises in my heart. I feel his presence. Or there's some sort of spiritual resurrection. No, the Bible says true bodily resurrection in a true humanity. And that is so, so very, very important. He continues to represent us as a man No change in that. He is still our second Adam with his human nature, united to divine nature. He is always our representative. Now, we'll get more of that when we come to the ascension account. We'll come to more of that important truth that we have a man in the glory. But the Lord is our substitute, our representative, even in his glorious humanity. And he continues to serve as our mediator. There is no way, dear sinner, no way for you to get to God but through Christ Jesus. And yes, we say he is our messianic mediator and he dies for our sins, but he must continue to be our mediator if we are to get to God today. And so you have this idea of our Savior with outstretched hands, a hand on deity, a hand on humanity, and we We get to the Father through the Son. No other way. It's only through Christ. There is so much religion going on in this nation at this time where God is talked about in some sort of abstract fashion. And you should trust in God and believe in God. Let me remind you again, the only way to get to the Father is through the Son. And he is our everlasting, eternal mediator. He will never cease to be God and man, reconciling God to man and man to God. So it's very, very important that you affirm and testify time and time again the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus. But secondly, and it's connected, please note there is continuity with his agony. There's a sense we're being told, we're being encouraged in the text to see this continuity with his agony. Verse number 40, And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. Right, some say that's part, maybe part of the reason whereby when he broke bread with those on the road to mess, that they, they recognized him, they saw his hands, and perhaps that may part of the part of the truth. But we know that when it comes to the hands and the feet, there is something significant that Luke does not tell us. He assumes it. But the detail is given to us by John. Please turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And of course, it is the account of Thomas. Here's the idea again of there being more than one appearance of Christ with the disciples. We know that because Thomas wasn't there the first time. So you go, verse number 25. The disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And there is the recognition, even by Christ himself, verse number 27, that there is the perpetual scarring of in our Lord's glorified body. The Lord's sufferings are marked, even in this glorious resurrected body. Why? Well, it just was the way it was. I don't believe, this is just a passing comment again, I don't believe the scars you have right now will persist in your resurrected bodies. Can't prove it but it's a hunch I have that our resurrected bodies that dissolve and go to dust are resurrecting glorious bodies, and there's no perpetual evidence of the things we've suffered in that sense. So what is this? This must be significant, and it is. You see, when when the Lord says, it is finished, does not mean there is no need for the continued presentation of his sufferings. It's not the case of, well, that bit's done. The cross is over. Time to move on. The cross and its significance has eternal perpetual significance. We sometimes sing the hymn, The blood shall never lose its power. And we have this idea, Till all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more. No, the blood shall never lose its power. Full stop, period, end of story. There is no time, even when all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more, even then the blood still will not lose its power. Your only hope of never ever falling away is the perpetual virtue and advocacy of Christ's atonement. And so the suffering marks continue even in the glorified state. And so I've given you, again, your outline, I've given you three concepts. Just to illustrate this theologically, there are three concepts that are true because of the continued application of the Lord's atonement. First of all, the entrance to heaven is secured by the work of atonement. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, please. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, what you see here is, if you like, imagery that's different. Okay, so it's not the idea of the scars of the Lord uh, entering into heaven with those scars. It is entering to heaven with His blood. And, of course, Hebrews dealing with the sacrifice and blood. Of course, that's how it's going to be put across in Hebrews Verse number 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The entrance of Christ, expanded upon in verse number 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often. As the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then verse 28, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. He's offered once, but he enters heaven on the merits of that one offering. And that one offering is of such continued, abiding effectiveness that there is no need for any further offering. Once is enough. Because the once has ongoing eternal significance. He enters into heaven. Again, the idea almost is, as the Lord enters heaven to continue His work intercession, He proves His legitimacy. He essentially says, I I have the right to be the interceder. I have the right to be the redeemer. See my blood and see my hands and my feet. He's, He's proving that he is indeed the successful savior of sinners. That's where you should ground your assurance. Not on how you feel or what you do or how good you are, but rather ground your assurance on the perfect sufficient of Christ's sacrifice. Secondly, the future of redemption is secured by the work of atonement also. Again, these are connected, but turn to Revelation chapter 5. We've seen this, of course, in our studies in Revelation, in our prayer meeting. But note again, there's a book, and the book is the decree of God. The scroll, and it's sealed. And who's going to be worthy to open the book and to list the seals? They're all verse number 2. And John weeps. But he should not weep, because verse number five: "The Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof." And he looks to see this lion, but rather than a lion, he sees a lamb. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb. But please know what it says: "As it had been slain." The virtue of the lion and his ability to open the scrolls is grounded upon the fact that the lamb appears as had been slain, living, but with the marks of the sacrificial atonement that it provided. Christ, of course, in view in this picture, and he comes and takes the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, and we know what happens next. He takes the scroll and he loosens the seals thereof, and redemption goes forward. Judgment comes upon the ungodly, and the people of God are safely gathered into the company around the throne. And so we see that the work of Christ and the ongoing importance of his atonement is the grounds whereby he takes the book, and redemption goes forward. What's the point of us going around the corner here and preaching the gospel this afternoon? Because the Lamb that is slain is on the throne. And as such, He opens the seals thereof, and the gospel is forward to all the elect, and they hear the word of God, and they are gloriously saved. That's why we have any hope when we come to preach the gospel. Look at His hands and His feet. See the side and the spear print in His side. Thirdly, again, these are still connected. The justification of the saints depends on the unfailing merit of his atonement. Turn now, please, to Romans chapter 4. One of you here will remember a conversation we had recently about the hymn that we weren't so certain about. I had some real doubts about a hymn when I was, when I was younger, this, this idea that rising, he justifies freely forever. We sang it a few weeks ago. Because it causes some questions. Are we not justified by his bloods? It's not very clear. Romans chapter 5 and the verse number 9. Being now justified by his bloods. But chapter 4 says in verse number 25. Who was delivered for our offenses. And was raised again for our justification. So which is it? Are we justified by resurrection? Or are we justified by bloods? Of course, the answer is yes. All of that all together. Never, ever separated. And sometimes, again, because of the so-called and the idea of the Christian calendar, we focus on resurrection as distinct from the atonement. We must never do so. The resurrection, if you like, is the seal. It is the authentication of the atonement, and they all must come together. Hence, He is raised for our justification. No resurrection. No justification. Of course, that hypothetical does not happen. But the justification or justification rests on the eternal value of Christ's work. That as the man in the glory, he comes and receives, presenting again the merits of his work. His blood and his body offered on our behalf, presented before the Father, whereby we can be justified. So never ever think of the death of Christ without the resurrection. And never think of the resurrection without the death of Christ being in your mind. You see, you go forward to verse number 1 of chapter 5. Raised for our justification, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Verse 2, we have access. Verse 3, we can glory and hope in tribulation. Then on down through the chapter, we can have the assurance of final salvation. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. You think of all of the benefits of the justifying work of God. What is it to be justified? I hope you know by now, it is to be declared righteous. No sin, perfect righteousness because of Christ's work, because of His life and death and resurrection, all of those things. Whereby, when you trust in Christ and believe in Him without any works, you are perfectly justified. And these blessings are yours. Peace with God, access to the throne of grace, hope in your tribulations, assurance, all of these things. And so in your doubts and in your discouragement, you must come back to the fact He is risen. He is risen. Therefore, I know that all of this is mine because He's risen and therefore I am truly justified by God. That's the importance, I believe, at least partly of the continuation with his agonies. But thirdly and finally and very briefly, think about the continuity in his ministry. Three areas. First of all he breaks bread. Verse number thirty. And it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. I know the temptation here is to look at this as referring to the Lord's table. It's known as the breaking of bread in the in the in the epistles. And so it's nice to think of this in terms of a communion address where you preach on this and you say, well, he was known in the breaking of bread. The problem is, Cleopas was not there at the first time the Lord's table was celebrated. He wasn't one of that inner circle of 11 who were still there when Judas left. And so it's more than likely the case that the reference here may well have been to the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000 or some other time. Whatever the case is, the Lord must have done something distinctively in the breaking of bread. But they make it clear, verse number 35, He was known of them in breaking of bread. There was something about how He did it. And that's why I'm not sure, just the hands. There was something about the way that He did it, that they knew this is our Savior. And if it is the feeding of the 5,000, It's a reminder again, the Lord is showing them, I'm still the same giving Jesus. what happens in the 5,000? Remember John chapter 6? The disciples come and they want more bread. They They were fed of Christ, but they want more bread. And so they go and the Lord gives that difficult sermon. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in me. And people leave. These sayings are too hard. That's John chapter 6. And Peter says, Thou hast the words, return life to him, else shall we go. All of that in John chapter 6. Whereby the Lord draws a connection. The bread that he gave the people on the mount when they were gathered and they were scattered around him, he broke the bread and gave it to them. That bread was symbolic of Christ himself. That as bread... Sustains and satisfies, so Christ sustains and satisfies his people. Not physically, but spiritually. And so we take him by faith, and as we eat of him and drink of him by faith, we are sustained and we shall never die. And so when you get to the post resurrection appearances, and we see again our Lord breaking bread, and the importance of that to the disciples. It is a reminder to them I believe that He is the one whom they must believe if they are to live and never die. There's continuity in the breaking of bread. Secondly, there's continuity in the way He provides peace. Verse number 36, Peace be unto you. Again, peace is important in the Scriptures. Christ is the Prince of Peace. Peace, goodwill to all men, said the angels when Christ comes into this world. It is Christ's presence and the reassurance of Christ's words that always bring peace in our turmoils. And sadly, there's something that we as God's people, we are so slow to remember. In the turmoils of life, we seek to find peace somewhere else. But Christ, of course, is the only one true provider of peace, legal peace, we once were far off, we're brought nigh, we're reconciled by the blood of Christ. The peace that He gives is the peace that is purchased on Calvary, that peace that reconciles sinners to God. But of course, He also tells the disciples, My peace I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Verse 38 Why are ye troubled? Verse 36 Peace be unto you. We have the promise that Christ, as our risen high priest, will give us peace. Is it a case that we have not because we ask not? Is it a case that we have not because we don't submit to Him and trust Him as the provider of peace? Why are we so troubled? Christ continues to provide peace. Thirdly and finally, He also teaches truth. Continuity again. Verse number 45. He opens the understanding that may understand the Scriptures He is the continued Bible teacher. He does so then, as verse 44 says, speaking the things which he said while I was yet with you. You see the continuity again? He taught them while he was with them, and now he's risen again. He's about to leave, but he's still teaching them. He does so here directly. He will soon do so spiritually by giving the Spirit to the churches, teaching all things, that the Spirit is taught of God. That's John chapter 14. The Lord continues to teach. Ephesians chapter 4. The risen Christ gives gifts to His church, including the pastor teacher for the ministry of the Word. Continuity here. Let me encourage the believers in Orlando. It is Christ's good pleasure to give His church Bible teachers for the nourishment of the saints. We're seeing here that when Christ is risen indeed, it is finished, the work is complete, but he does not not stop teaching his church. And if you believe for a second that you can stop learning of Christ, you have some very serious pride issues. He continues to teach us and opens our understanding to understand the Scriptures. So, Christ is risen indeed. But He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our continuing Savior and mediator, our continuing prophet, priest, and king. And He is worthy of your worship and worthy of every confidence of your heart. This is the Savior. See Him and trust in Him. Give up on all false gods and worship Christ and Christ alone. Let's close in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we come before Thee again in the name of our Savior. And we're very mindful of of our needs to understand the Scriptures. Lead us and guide us and direct our minds Oh, God, I pray that Christ would be all in all in all of our souls. Help us today. Bless the Sabbath day to our souls. And Again, give help as we consider this time of outreach now. We pray again for your spirit to be upon your people. Give us all grace. and May the word of God rest and abide in somebody's heart to the same of their souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.